This is Speaker for the Living, a podcast where we explore human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. My name is Seth There, I'm one of the hosts. My co-host is JJ Genflown. Hi, everybody! Hey, JJ. Do you know what a CSA is? I don't know what a CSA is, Seth. What is it? It stands for Community Supported Agriculture. And this is not an advertisement. It could be if any CSA wants to pay us, but you probably won't by the time we're done with the episode. Ominous. (laughs) So back in June 2010, a friend and I visited Grant Family Farms in Wellington, Colorado. That is Mm -hmm. just north of where I live. And they had a farm there and they had an event. It was an orientation so you could see the wonders of Grant Family Farms. It was Colorado's first certified organic farm. And one of the largest CSAs in the country, also a supplier of Whole Foods. So I had a friend who was interning, and uh, we went and learned about the organic practices and what a CSA is. So we learned that the uh, CSA model, where uh, you buy a share, and so a friend and I decided, hey, this sounds cool. We get organic food, and we get a share every week. And it's different vegetables that are seasonal every week. For instance, it was the first time I had kohlrabi, which I think of as that little alien from Toy Story. It's kind of what it reminds me of. And, you know, there's the challenge of you have to use the vegetables then because vegetables don't last and they're organic, so they really don't last. So you have to use them. But, you know, I made soup and everything. It was a good experience. And uh, by buying a share for each season... You pay all at once, and then you fund them for the entire season. So it's something Mm -hmm. where you get something out of it, they get something out of it, they're local. And in the case of Grant, they were like the largest CSA. So it was a really cool model. What we did not know when we signed up in 2010 was that there was an incidence of labor trafficking years prior at Grant Family Farm. Somehow that wasn't in their introductory uh, pitch. Although if we would have looked into it online, we would have easily found it. So the story of Grant Family Farms. They began in 1998. They were founded by Andy Grant. So the incident in question involves a labor broker named Moises Rodriguez. He was known in the farm fields of northern Colorado He was a contractor. Internationally, we often talk about them as labor brokers. They are the middlemen who go and find contract labor. And there's no one way of doing it, but essentially they go find the labor. They facilitate the contract. You might work directly for the labor broker. You might work for the company after they bring you there, but that's what they do. So the farmers would pay Rodriguez a uh, lump sum to cover wages, insurance, and taxes, and then he would pay the workers. So that's one of the cases where he's paying the workers directly. So his wife, Maria, handled the books. So they had their own little business, and uh, they had to provide documents to the farmers that showed that all their employees were legal workers. So he had worked with Grant Family Farms before, and for the specific workers that are involved in this story, they were in Mexico, And they were told to find their way to a hotel to ask for a mysterious man. He was a coyote or a smuggler. 
He would lead them out into the desert where they would walk for days and cross the border into Arizona. Then the coyote would place a call on his cell phone. Then they would pile in and go to Phoenix. And then they rode in a pickup truck to Denver where they went to a fenced-in compound on a nine-acre tract in Hudson, Colorado, which is not, you know, Hudson, Wellington are in the same area of northern Colorado. They were in some apartment buildings where there's 20 units separated by a not-so-nice bathhouse. And so there'd be uh, two to six men per apartment. Now, at this part, that doesn't necessarily mean it's trafficking. It just might mean not great living conditions. But it all goes into the mix. And uh, the water was undrinkable. Bathrooms and showers were inadequate. And there were a lot of insects infesting the area. Based on a videotape by federal agents that was later executed during a search warrant, the place where these guys were living had uh, floors with broken and missing tiles, had walls with holes and splotches of mold and red sign hanging above the sink, warning that the water wasn't safe to drink. And uh, the men contributed the mess too, so there's trash and dirty dishes and whatnot. So that's where they were living. Sounds beautiful. Mm-hmm. So these five men were hired in the spring of 2004, and each day during the season, their regimen was to go into an old school bus and ride to the farm, spend 12 hours planting, weeding, and harvesting. They expected the hard work, but when they had reached the compound, they were told by Rodriguez that they owed a debt of 1100 to $1,300 that they weren't expecting for transportation. What does that sound like, JJ? Well, yeah. So, yeah, bonded labor, debt bondage, where essentially as a, as a form of control, the trafficker will continue to tell the, the victim, you know, you owe me X amount of money, but the terms of, of repayment aren't clearly stated or or the terms of how this debt is accruing is is not really shown. And so, you know, with each passing day, you owe more and more money and you're making less and less money to pay back. So the, the idea behind debt bondage is, is that you never actually are going to be able to pay this off and you're not intended to pay it off either. Right. And it's a common model in all types of trafficking, partially because it it's effective for the purpose of trafficking. It's effective to keep people psychologically controlled by using their impression of their finances and uh, plus they're usually in a different country and don't know all the rules. So, and the case ends up being even clearer than that. So other factors in the case. So the uh, commute was 60 to 90 minutes. While they worked 12-hour days, it looks like sometimes they worked over 16 hours, six or seven days a week. There are labor laws that apply to like farm workers in general, including <laughs> people that come in on uh, HB visas, which these people did not. So the five guys, they believe they would be found and harmed if they left the compound. And they also believe that their coworkers would be forced to pay off their debts. They said that the people that ran the compound brought guns to work and at least once fired the guns to show that they worked. And also that they insulted and threatened in order to keep them living in fear. Additionally, they said they were under constant surveillance by Moises Rodriguez and the foreman to prevent them from leaving and to make sure that they kept the pace and intensity of their work. In terms of payment, they were uh, paid once a month, but their pay was reduced 
via deductions for rent, cleaning, tools, travel, and repayment of the smuggling fee, which we already mentioned. So not only did they have the fee that they were supposed to repay, but then there was deductions, and usually the deductions are not clear, and sometimes they don't end up paying as much as they expect based on math, because they... They use really creative math, these traffickers. Or, or, or at all. So we've seen cases of debt bondage where, like, at the end of the month, when it comes time for payday, you actually owe your trafficker money. Mm-hmm. Because, specifically, like, they say that they've spent more on housing you and feeding you, maybe, than, than you've made for them. So the number of Which hours... Again, yeah. Another way to keep you. So the number of hours they worked was rounded down to 12, but, as I already mentioned, they often work more. Social security was deducted, even though they didn't have a social security number. So there were lots of deductions from their pay. They paid uh, $100 a month for rent, paid almost $100 for transportation a month. They were even charged for bathroom cleaning, even though their bathroom wasn't clean. Yeah, exactly. you're, You're paying ridiculous amounts of money for a really crappy tent apartment. Based on calculations, it looks like they were paid as little as two ninety an hour for a sixty hour work week. So in uh, two thousand four, they began telling their story to uh, Pat Medage at Colorado Legal Services. Okay. We've uh, had the opportunity to hear some presentations and meet people from Colorado Legal Services. They're really good people. And uh, in a videotaped interview by Pat, uh, one of the men explained that he felt fear. And this particular man said that he wasn't beaten or threatened, but that he felt powerless. And he felt scared after hearing his boss attract down one man in North Carolina. Now, in the fall of 2004, U.S. Immigrations and Custom Enforcement, ICE, began surveillance on the camp. They noticed dozens of men living there in cramped, filthy conditions, and they you know, took note of where people were coming and going and talking on phones. Also in 2004, inspectors from the Colorado Department of Labor, they uh, concluded that the camp in Hudson was not livable, and they denied Rodriguez's application to be a crew leader who provides housing to migrant farm workers. They suspected, though, that they were ignoring that information and bringing in people and housing them anyway. And hey, they're already not following the law, so why would they care what the Department of Labor said? Not to be deterred, his wife applied to be a crew leader, but the Department of Labor was smarter than them and uh, did another inspection and said nope. And when they did an inspection, they realized not everyone was in the country legally. So then Pat Medich helped convince five of those men, who were the protagonists here, to cooperate with federal investigators, even though it could mean deportation. What is the price tag on your freedom? She asked. They just decided in the course of the of a season to take a stand. We kept meeting with them, and they would not stand for it. They said, we are not going to let this happen to somebody else. Now, cooperating with federal investigators, even though it could mean deportation, like those are the choices that they have to make, and they're threatened with deportation frequently farm workers are if they're here illegally now whether they should be here or not is a separate discussion with the fact that this is used as leverage to keep people in slave-like conditions and then a grand jury indicted 
Moises and Maria Rodriguez and their son Javier on charges of harboring and transporting illegal immigrants, not on trafficking. But on smuggling. Mm-hmm. On smuggling, which they were guilty of. Federal authorities seized the property and more than 100000 in cash. They also found uh, um, two pistols and ammunition. In 2006, uh, Moises and Maria each served a year in da- jail and were deported. Javier was an American citizen. He was sentenced to home detention. But to reiterate, federal prosecutors did not pursue charges of trafficking and voluntary servitude or anything similar. Which uh, gets to, you know, something that happens, and it's happened with uh, sheep herders in Colorado as well, where it ends up being a civil case where the people abused get a remedy, not a federal case or, or, or a state case even, where people are investigated and prosecuted for trafficking. And if you have to worry about something being a civil case... Yeah. We've just seen a number of trafficking instances where it ends up being remedied by a civil case rather than a criminal one. Now, part of what was complicated here, which is what gets complicated about trafficking, is the surveillance tapes showed the workers coming and going. Mm-hmm. So it would be difficult to convince a jury that they couldn't have escaped. Now, even the TVPA and how it defines trafficking isn't that specific. Like it mentions psychological coercion. It always has. But that doesn't mean it's going to be easy to prosecute psychological coercion. Well, exactly. And I think we talk about that a lot. And criminal cases have a higher burden of proof. So proving it beyond a reasonable doubt would be difficult. However, they were given temporary visas, allowing them to stay in the U.S., which is great if you're a victim. But they were told they could be deported once the case was concluded, which is less great. So April- and it's not really encouraging people to stick around. No. So in April 2006, uh, Medage filed a civil lawsuit on behalf of the workers against the Rodriguez's and also Andy Grant and Grant Family Farms. It alleged violations of the Agricultural Worker Protection Act and the Fair Labor Standards Act. It also asserted that Grant should have known how the workers were being treated and therefore condoned it. On April 14th, 2009, about a, a year before I learned of the existence of Grant Family Farms and visited them, a judge awarded more than $1.5 million to each of the five men for numerous violations of federal labor law. And it was one of the largest judgments of its kind in the country at, at that time. Woo! So one of the largest labor trafficking awards was just north of here for for agricultural labor trafficking of uh, undocumented immigrants. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Andy Grant of Grant Family Farms denied that he knew anything about the way the men were being treated, and he argued that since he wasn't their employer, he shouldn't be held liable to the Fair Labor Standards Act. However, he settled for uh, ten to twenty thousand for each worker. He said it was a kick in the gut, an affront to him because he grew up playing with, with children of Mexican farm workers, and he pays above minimum wage, and he has an absolute commitment to social justice for workers. 
I am calling him a wambulance. If you are willfully blind to abuses of subcontractors, um, that's a potential gray area of anti-trafficking law. I would have to look at all anti-trafficking law to uh, know whether any of it would prosecute mm-hmm. that scenario. But it makes it easier for companies to deflect liability. And this is something that happens in supply chains. This is a very localized supply chain. It's, I mean, it's their own farm. But uh, it did spread out across many, many acres. And uh, I think of it as like the Nike defense back when it was brought to their attention that their subcontractor in other, another country was had bad working conditions. And Nike was like, well, that's the subcontractor. It's not our fault. But they're a brand, so they can't get away with that. Yeah, but I think we've seen that argument, too, and in other contexts, but the subcontractor argument gets brought out a lot. That it, it's not the... We, we talked about this a little bit in our Foxconn episode, but, but companies will claim that, well, it's not us, it's them. Yeah, and, like, I'm guessing Andy Grant was well-meaning and that he was probably feeling awful that this happened, like even the fact that there wasn't a civil case about him. Or, mm-hmm. But it, it also shows a lack of oversight, that if you're not paying enough attention and you're just trusting everyone who you're subcontracting with, that then you, you're trying to excuse it. And you know, from a legal side, I, I can understand why he wouldn't want to be prosecuted for that sort of thing. But it shows in the uh, farming and in supply chains and all of it that they have to find better ways of doing oversight. Like you can't just trust your subcontractors. And it's a little less excusable when this isn't in another country. This was nearby and they weren't paying enough attention. Yeah. So that is the tale of Grand Family Farms, which I had thought when I initially saw that there was trafficking there that it was after I bought the share and that was part of what led them to uh, go through a different owner and eventually close in 2018. But then I realized it actually happened before I got a share and they weren't transparent about it. Yeah, well, exactly. So this gets into the situation of migrant farm workers, both uh, legal and uh, and illegal Mm -hmm. workers are part of our agricultural system. Both are also abused. Not not all of them. I'm not saying that, but it's they're both just just coming here legally doesn't mean you're not going to be abused. Is my point. And uh, based on some stats from CLS, 72% of all farm workers in the U.S. are foreign born. I think we rely on people that are foreign born to do our agriculture. There are many that are documented. They often lived in employer-provided housing. It's usually in rural areas, and so it's easier for them to be isolated. There are many who do not speak English or do not speak English well. Yes. And the H-2A Agricultural Work Visa Program has requirements which are not always kept by the employer. In other words, the employer sometimes violates labor law. Or I think sometimes, too, more than that, even if people have all of their documentation and are in the U.S. legally, 
I think the fear is that they won't be believed that they're here legally or that they don't necessarily understand the legality, you know, because visas are, are complicated so that, you know, they think that maybe they've done something illegal and that they'll be punished for coming forward. So what are some other ways that uh, farm workers can be trafficked in the U.S., JJ? Well, I mean, we also see them getting beyond like sort of debt bondage. We also see, I think the first thing that I would like to mention is there is an intersection between labor and, and sex work that can sometimes happen here where farm workers are sexually exploited and, and are victims of sexual violence and are sex trafficked in addition to being uh, used for for just pure labor. So there there is that intersection, that overlap. There, I think just sort of any agricultural sector is is open to human trafficking. So one other thing that sometimes happens is because it's like seasonal or temporary work or because it's very isolated, workers can just get sort of dumped places. So say you're working in like sheep herding and so maybe you get dumped in a place where you're un- an entirely alone you know, it, it's you and you're solo and you have no one to talk to except for maybe your trafficker who stops by every now and again. That's that's just an increased vulnerability. But I think increasingly we're seeing sort of farm workers also sort of in commercial fisheries and things of that nature, which technically counts as, as an agricultural form of trafficking. And the Grand Family Farms example includes most of the common indicators. Yeah. Such as the debts, the low wages, being cut off from networks, uh, fear of retaliation, doesn't appear that their immigration documents were taken or that they mm-hmm. even had them, which which is one difference between uh, sheep herders who came here legally and had their documents taken, as has happened in Colorado, versus people who came over without documents that don't have them to be taken in the first place. Exactly. In terms of brokerage fees, uh, Verite did some research. Uh, disclaimer, I intern for Verite for a summer. They're awesome. And they do the sort of research into supply chains and labor, labor rights. And, uh, you know, brokerage fees are often uh, between 3000 to 27000 among workers who come in legally, and then they charge interest, and then they can still threaten them with various things, violence, um, deportation, such as uh, if you come here legally to work for an employer, you are tied to that employer. So if you decide to not work for that employer, you could be deported or sent back. Or you could choose to leave the employer and work illegally. That's also happened with people that are working under abusive legal employers, such as ranchers in Colorado. Yep. But then with undocumented workers, you might have that flexibility if you have a network, but if you don't, you're going to be isolated and you can uh, be in the situation that these guys were. And in this case, they were just north of Fort Collins. Fort Collins is a metro of over 150,000 people. We're only an hour from Denver. So it's much different than working in uh, agricultural parts of Colorado, where it's going to be a lot harder for anyone to reach you. But uh, th- this one's more, this story is more personal to me because it's something I actually have been on the property and I've had the tour and have used their products. And it's 
a little more unsettling. Yeah. Well, I think it feels whenever we do, particularly, I think, Denver-based stories and things like that or places we've been, it hits a little bit more close to home. And as Professor Destray told us when we were at the Human Trafficking Center, like you need to be aware and, and that by doing traf- anti-trafficking work, suddenly you look around and you don't always assume that all the workers you're seeing doing manual labor and doing farming and doing road work, you stop assuming they're all fine. And you start to wonder. Because sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're in an exploitive situation. Yeah, we can't assume anything. But if you see signs, um, you know, that's one reason to call the trafficking hotline, which we mention every so often. And in Colorado, that number is 866-455-5075. And nationally, it's 888-373-7888. And if you wonder, you can call them and talk to them, and they will pass it on. You can also call law enforcement, local law enforcement, to report a tip if you have a concern about a situation. Yeah, remember, never, you know, reach out directly. Don't don't put people in that position of you trying to play, play savior. But yes, there are people who are experts looking to this, whether that would be law enforcement specifically or some organization like Colorado Legal Services who will go and do interviews and so on, depending on the situation. And that is the tale of Grant Family Farms. But if you haven't tried a CSA... I encourage you to try one out. Uh, you may want to make sure that they don't have any trafficking if they're big. If they're small, you would hope that they're more they're community-oriented enough that that wouldn't be a concern. But you never know. So, you know, just keep your eyes open and, you know, ask who works there, especially during harvest, and uh, see what they're about. And always check things. Just because the marketing is good doesn't mean it's true. Yep. All right. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.